all over Europe for centuries. They were the literal and political high points of their communities. Designed to keep people out, today they are wide open to visitors. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Get out the grappling hooks, because today, on Travel with Rick Steves, our target is castles. Castles are the highest demonstration of wealth and power in the secular world. My favorite expert anywhere on castles joins us today to field your calls and bring meaning to what lies beyond the moat. Martin Delandovitz guides visitors through Carnarvon Castle in northern Wales, and he'll guide us in just a moment as modern tourism meets the lords and ladies of the feudal age. And for something entirely different, we'll look at how one program sends American high school students to Guatemala. It's a hands-on opportunity for students to learn about the interconnectedness of our modern world and how the choices they make here in the United States have consequences for neighbors south of the border, from hill-capping European castles to jungle villages in Central America. Thanks for joining us for the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His now classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks for London, England, Great Britain, and Ireland. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for Britain, Ireland, and beyond, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com. We're getting a taste of medieval life from a guide who knows castles as if he lived in one on today's Travel with Rick Steves. And later in the hour... We'll hear how American students are learning firsthand how to be global citizens, thanks to an organization that helps young Americans have a rich Guatemalan village experience. Kids of all ages are climbing through the castles of Europe, imagining they're under attack a thousand years ago, back when Europe was in the feudal ages and everybody was fighting everybody. Well, we can bring meaning to those castles, and that's what we're doing today. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Martin Delandovitz from Northern Wales, where I think the greatest concentration of great castles are anywhere in Europe. Martin, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me, Rick. First time I met you, you were a guide at Carnarvon Castle. That's true, and I still am. You still do the work. I still do the work. So what's it like? Uh, you take Carnarvon, which there's a lot of great castles, but Carnarvon has uh, got to be one of the best castles in Europe. First of all, tell me why you would work in Carnarvon. What's special about Carnarvon? I think, I mean, all right, it's got its association. It's the place where Prince Charles was crowned Prince of Wales. But if you take it as a medieval castle, pure and simple, it's the most expensive castle ever built by a king of England. And it's a great building. It's one of the rare castles that does not only, uh, how can one say, military stuff, but it also does art. It's a great piece of architecture. It's got aesthetics, doesn't it? There's uh, stylish stripes built into the stonework and and, uh, beautiful corners and... uh, First, let's put it in the broader picture here. We're talking about northern Wales, and there's so many castles in North Wales, and they were not built by the Welsh. They were built by an invading force, weren't they? Yeah, the best known are. They're built at the order of Edward I. Now, your listeners may recognize him better as Longshanks from the film Braveheart. Ah. And Edward I, just as he was severe in Scotland, so he was severe in Wales. And he adopted that John Wayne-esque philosophy of moving west into territory that became hostile and building forts as he went. And that's why you have so many. So the English moved west. They took over Wales. They had some, uh, you could call them insurgents, I guess, couldn't you? Yes. Yeah. And they, the local people couldn't be shocked and awed by this English, uh, you know, military might. So Edward had to establish little, um, what do you call it, toeholds in, in yeah. England. And he would have, each castle would have a, a garrison town with it. Yeah. I mean, they call them Bastide in France. You know them from the Dordogne. Uh, it's the same idea. You're building a frontier outpost. And to make a comparison with John Wayne isn't out of order. The English people that came to live in those towns really were frontiers people. They came and lived amongst hostiles. They had to live within fortifications. That's right. And did they bribe them to go there? Because it must have been miserable. I mean, Wales is not your ideal paradise anyways, if you are an Englishman. Let's (laughs) put it this, you're an Englishman. So in Middle Ages, they're getting a bunch of English people to go move, to live in the middle of a bunch of angry Welsh people. How did they encourage the English settlers to go over there and subjugate these Welsh? Well, very much as they attempted to settle the frontier in the U.S., what they did was said, hey, we'll give you a great deal. You can live in this land rent-free for 10 years, and for a low rent thereafter, come and live here, come and settle. And picture those people back home in England in relative security, the man and wife sitting down, talking about it, and say, yep, we're going to do it. And they sell up, and they move. So they sell their house in, in London or whatever, and they move out to the Wild West, yeah. and they're promised uh, land? Yes, land to farm, land to build a house on. As long as they don't get uh, killed by the angry Welsh. Yeah, that, that didn't happen as much as, as one would think. It's very much, if how can one say... 
I'm sure we're going to touch on this. What you had was a change in regime. Edward I became their new lord. The rules, the laws stayed the same. They didn't alter. Okay, so in northern Wales, we've got, what's it called, the the Iron Ring or something like that? Yeah, they call Edward the five big castles, and it was called the Iron Fist, one for each finger. When I met you at Carnarvon, what I was so impressed by was how you brought to life what a castle was all about. So let's forget any particular castle. Let's just talk castle life. First of all, castles evolved from this Mott and Bailey business. That's right. Tell me the Mott and Bailey thing. Right, what happens is William the Conqueror, William the Norman, the Duke of Normandy, conquers England in 1066, and he brings with him the habit of castle building. And he brought a ready kit form castle. On a mound of earth, you built a wooden tower. And the first castles built in Britain were built at the order of William the Conqueror, and they were largely quick castles, mound of earth, wooden tower. Mound of earth, wooden tower. And yeah. the mound of earth is called a... A mot. A mot. Now, the bailey would be the, the equivalent of the garrison town. That's right, the yard at the bottom, if you like, an enclosed The yard. Area. With a stockade around it. That's right, yes. So the green zone. Yes, if you like. That's a good way of putting it. Okay, so Mutt and Bailey. So the original castle design, a man-made mound so you can see the enemy and you can be above the spears and a, a wooden tower. Yeah. And as people got more sophisticated, uh, sometimes they would take a mound of vert that was already there, build it on a, on a hilltop or something, and then instead of a wooden tower, it would be a stone tower. And we have the bailey, the garrison town. Uh, with stone walls. Now you've got the advent of cannon. When cannon comes in, you have a different philosophy of defense, don't you? That's right. And that's the evolution of castles. Stone came about because, of course, people burn wooden towers, don't they? So, right. So that they build them in stone. And then castles, medieval castles evolved. But the cannon, let's say the cannon really begins to affect things, let's say, from just after 1400 onwards. You have to change things totally. And there's nowhere better to see this in Europe because, and I know I'm talking later, but as Napoleon moves through Europe, Right. Then, of course, that's really in the time of castles. You see castles in the Napoleonic Age, but they are hunkering down that's instead right. of standing tall. Yeah. A standing tall castle is oppressive if you are dealing with people before cannon. That's right. But if you're standing tall with cannon, it's just like uh, you're just open to be uh, slaughtered with those cannonballs. Yeah. And where is it? It's Ehrenberg, isn't it? In, uh, oh, Ehrenberg uh, yeah. in, in Germany. Yeah. You see it nowhere better, that evolution towards, towards cannon. And so often... Oh, shaft- you're, no, you're thinking Aaron Breitzen. Am I? Aaron Brighton on the Rhine, it's a, it's a 19th century castle, maybe. Right. I don't know, but it's, it's low because they were worried about the artillery. That's right. If you're building a medieval castle and you're concerned about people throwing things at you, I understand a round turret is stronger than a square turret. Yes, if, if you're dealing with simple machinery. Also, if you, if you do the sums, you build less wall to enclose the same area if you're building round to square. And is it true that it's harder to knock the corner off of a... Yeah, if, there, if you want to weaken the, the structure of a castle, knock the corner off of, of an edge and you've uh, right. compromised the whole structure. But if it's circular, it's tougher to crack that egg. Yeah, exactly. And the egg is a perfect example again. And then they would undermine castles too by just... That's right. if, if you couldn't break the wall, you could burrow down and, and take away the foundation so the wall would fall on its own. Is that right? The way to attack a castle is either go through the walls, so let's make the walls thick, or you go over the walls, so let's make the walls high. So when you arrive at a good, well-built castle, it's got very thick, very high walls, and that's the reason. Now, as you say, cannon change that. They're big, high towers that are easy targets for a cannon, so make them lower. Pack them with earth so that they're resilient, resistant to that. Thick walls, pound away forever on it, and it won't break through. Do we get this word undermine from digging under castles and having the wall yeah. fall? Yeah, the, the, the miners would be set in and they undermine. dig under. Undermine. Fascinating. It's Rheinfels Castle, not Nuremberg. Oh, Rheinfels, that's yeah, right. Yeah, it is, it is that combination yeah. of medieval and... Uh, now, let's talk about the life in a castle. You know, the, the lord of the castle, he's going to be a, a relatively wealthy, comfortable guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, do they have running water? Do they have heat? Do they have toilets? Yes. In the Middle Ages? That surprises you, but true, Yes. Tell me about the plumbing of the Middle-Aged uh, Castle. Well, uh, I, I know of two examples. I'll do, I'll do it generally. What you would have, you'd have a, a well, and then you have a header tank, and somebody would pull water, pour it into the header tank, and then lead piping would take water ah. through the castle. So the workhorses, the, the worker class, would, mm. would draw water out of the well and then fill up a big reservoir, and gravity would then give the castle right. running water. That's right. And the, uh, the noble and his lady would have a faucet, actually, and have water coming? We don't have any survival of faucets, but we know that there are lead piping and running water running through castles, which is, is quite a remarkable thing. when you know. Now, lavatories, yes, as well. And uh, Eltz is one of your favorite castles. Bergelt in yeah, Germany, in Germany, on the Mosel River. Yeah. And, and they have flushing lavatories there, but toilets there, don't they? Generally, the uh, toilets hang in a room over the edge, right? That's generally true, yes. So it's just 
just drop it into under the enemy. Which makes it very interesting to think about swimming the moat, doesn't it? <laughs> I bet it does. I bet it does. Now, there was uh, four-poster beds. When tourists love these four-poster beds, we pay 30 bucks a night extra to have a four-poster bed and a bed and breakfast, you know. Mm. That four-poster bed had an original practical purpose, didn't it? Yeah, uh, Again, they're quite late. They're, they're late medieval to post-medieval. And what you do is you have curtains around the four posts. You draw the curtains. And then you're kept warmer because you build your own little tent in the middle of a room. So you don't need to heat so much. I mean, right. given the realities of no general heating, you would space heat and you'd create a smaller space. That's right. Now, castles, all castle rooms have fireplaces so that you get heat from that. But if you want to be even warmer, a nice curtained-off bed, it's great. If you're into this romantic medieval castle kind of life, there are these um, tacky, touristy um, medieval folk banquets. Yes, there are. Tell me about those, because Wales is famous for those. That's right. Um, what it is, people dress up in a version of medieval, and they sing you songs and feed you food. I love them, and that's me. Uh, I think they're great because you just suspend disbelief. You just have a very good time. You hear some good singing. You eat some good food. You enjoy yourself in the company of others. In the case of Wales, you've got good singing because you have the wenches playing the harps and singing as they did in the Middle Ages. That's right. People criticize it. It's schmaltzy. It's not authentic. Of course it's not authentic. It's it's 21st century. You're eating with your fingers and a bib and a dagger and you're drinking mead and you're listening to harp music with a lot of tourists, but you're in a castle. Who couldn't enjoy it? That's great. Now, there's a a lot of different folk banquets that would give you the cliches of of the local food and drink. You'll hear stories, uh, you know, the the master of ceremonies in a Welsh castle will be uh, making jokes about the English visitors and the mm. Scottish visitors and the Irish visitors. Mm. It's fun. You get that local pride worked into the, uh, the the cabaret show. Yeah, you do. You do that. That, that lovely family called Britain, eh? Tell me about the, the family called Britain. <laughs> well, Britain itself is uh, England, Wales, and Scotland. And, of course, it's like any family. It has these bitter arguments and disagreements so that the jokes are at the expense of the others, aren't they? The English tell jokes at the expense of the Scots and the Welsh, and the Welsh tell jokes at the expense of the English. Well, probably the most modest and um, and talented and courageous would be the Welsh. Uh, listen, to date, 54 million Englishmen, or people, to date, two and a half million Welsh people. I mean, come on, we're small. We're small. I mean, we started with nothing, and we still got most of it, but it's, it's, it's a great country. Two and a half million Welsh, 50-some yeah. million English. Yeah. And your culture is strong. It is strong. Where I, where I come from, it's very strong. Are people still speaking the language, or is that just a relic of the past? The no, Welsh? where I come from, over 90% of the people use it as an everyday language. Really? So oh, yeah. when, you, when you walk down the street, people are speaking Welsh first? Yes. Is that more now than a generation ago, or the same, or what? It's the same where I come from. Now, in other parts of Wales, southeast Wales in particular, where you get the greatest population, Welsh is on the rise. But where I've come from, it's, it's always been... It just hasn't. It's so far away from England, nobody bothered with it. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're learning about castles, and a good place to learn about castles is in the north of Wales. We're joined by Martin Delandovitz, who lives in North Wales, and he is the tour guide for perhaps the greatest castle in all of Britain, Carnarvon Castle. Oh, how do you do? How do you do, good lady? I'm Arthur, King of the Britons. Whose castle is that? King of the who? The Britons. Who are the Britons? Well, we all are. We are all Britons. And I am your king. I didn't know we had a king. I thought we were an autonomous collective. You're fooling yourself. We're living in a dictatorship. A self-perpetuating autocracy in which the working classes... Oh, there get... you go, bringing class into it again. That's what it's all about. If only people would... Please, realize... please, good people. I am in haste. 877-333-RICK. That's our phone number. Radio at ricksteves.com is our email address.
today, we're seeing Europe's mighty castles as more than a romantic dreamscape. They're places to relive history, and a little background lets you ramble those ramparts with more meaning. For decades, Martin Delandovitz has been guiding visitors through Carnarvon Castle in Wales. He's our guide as we explore the culture of Europe's great castles on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll take your calls at 877-333-7425. I'll tell you, when you get into those castles, a little background helps you bring those castles to life. Then with a little imagination, you're under attack a thousand years ago in Portugal or Scotland or Norway or wherever you're traveling. Barbara is calling from Bothell in Washington. Barbara, thanks for your call. Oh, you're my pleasure. Do you have a question or a comment for Martin about castles? Well, I was in Wales last summer and spent the night in Conway and thoroughly enjoyed crawling around and through Conway Castle. Good to hear. Did you have a local guide while you were at the castle? No. Because uh, I, I was struck at, at Conway Castle how there's these retired gentlemen who know all the history and they hang out at the entryway and they love to take you around. Well, there was uh, one of the gentlemen up on the one of the guard houses yeah, did they for the entry. Quite talkative. Very talkative, answered some great questions. The castle's pretty well bare. There's no ceiling on it, but the walls are very intact, and they've got a chain around there to keep you from toppling off, of course. All right. But you can crawl up on the walls. You can overlook the whole town. Now, that's a great chance to look at one of those medieval garrison towns. You're looking out from Conway Castle, seeing this grid plan, rectangular military town that uh, survives to this day and is a great place to use as a home base for northern Wales exploration. I stay in a wonderful B&B there, and you can actually walk the entire wall around the city still. Martin, Conway is similar to Carnarvon that way, isn't it? That's right. I mean, the thing, uh, listening to your conversation, that people walk around these castles today and they see them bare, and as you rightly said, Barbara, there's no roof on the thing, and that roof came off that castle 400 years ago. Now, you only have to imagine your own home with a roof off for 400 years to think that what we're seeing is only what's left. And uh, I know that one of Rick's favorite castles in uh, Switzerland is Chillon. And if you ever get the chance, Barbara, you go there because it has all its plaster and all its paint from that time. Now, here's the interesting thing. I won't bore you with the details, but the same man that painted the walls of Chillon Castle painted the walls of Conway Castle. So if you do that, all the roofs, floors, ceilings, paint and plaster from 700 and odd years ago... That is exactly how Conway Castle looked. So 700 years ago, we're talking Switzerland and Wales. The same yes. artists and architects uh, and engineers were traveling around That's in this right. international Latin-speaking community building all of the great castles of Europe. That's right. And it's, it's interesting to think. You know, the story is Edward I goes down to uh, Savoy, sees the castle, likes it, and borrows the architect, borrows the interior decorator. And it was a commodity that he wanted. He wanted their skill. He wanted their design and their flair. And that's something that you can go and appreciate today in different countries. You can walk in the footsteps of medieval interior decorators if you want to. <laughs> as long as the roof stayed on. Well, yeah. It's, that yes, helps. that's, that's that the helps. thing, isn't it? All right. Barbara, thanks for your comment. Well, thank you. You bet. Gail's on the line in Harwood Heights, Illinois. Gail, thanks for your call. Hi. Hi. Got any castle stories? Yes. When we uh, went to Germany in 2007, uh, we went along the Rhine, and we stayed at Berg Reichenstein, which is supposedly a haunted castle. The story goes that a robber baron, in order to save the lives of his nine sons, was beheaded, and then the king saved the lives of his sons, and supposedly he haunts the castle to this day. But we didn't see him when we were there. Did you actually sleep there? Yes, we did. You slept yes. in a haunted castle? Yes. With your loved ones? Yes. <laughs> and nothing was, happened? It was fantastic. The rooms were great. They had a knight with armor, but missing the head in the hallway. <laughs> they were milking <laughs> this thing. You know what's interesting to me, Gail, is that these castles are owned by noble families in a lot of cases, but they've got the reality of 21st century living. They've got to pay taxes. They've got to renovate the place. The government requires them to keep the uh, facade or whatever, and it's tough for them to make ends meet. And a lot of them will let the castle be used by a hotel, or they'll make it into a guest house themselves, or in some cases, the castle just goes derelict. Uh, Martin, do you have any thoughts on, on sleeping in castles on the Rhine or, or this struggle that castles have to stay out of mothballs? 
Yeah, I mean, this is, it starts in the 19th century, doesn't it, when people are looking back to a golden past. The romantic age. Inventing their history. And people spend fortunes are spent on these castles recreating the past. And today you can benefit from that. You can stay in them. As a matter of fact, I find that the better castles, the very best castle, my favorite, is on the Mosul River that comes into the Rhine. It's sort of the little sister of the Rhine. But all the dramatic castles that people want to check out, most of them are on the Rhine. Remember that those castles were destroyed, I believe, by one of the French kings, sort of preventatively. Just France had the upper hand. Louis the Fourteenth, yeah. They, Louis the Fourteenth, and he just destroyed all the castles on the Rhine, except for one, Marksburg, because he didn't want uh, later age for the people up there to have castles from which to launch an attack on his realm, I guess. Many of them have been rebuilt in the 19th century during the Romantic Age, when people were reassessing the medieval past, and they would have these overbuilt castles. And many of the castles we look at today are built in a fanciful, over-the-top way. And we tourists think that's the way it was, but it didn't have quite so many turrets, and it wasn't quite so fanciful. Mm. And a lot of people built castles from scratch in a romantic way, like Mad King Ludwig. Mm. That's the finest example, isn't it? So, Gail, now you slept in this castle. Uh, how did you know about that, and, and was it a good experience to actually sleep in, in Castle Reichenstein on the Rhine River? Uh, we found it on the Internet, and actually what you were just saying about the families uh, remodeling it to try and make a go of things, because castles are very expensive to keep up, they got a hotel group in that remodeled the stables into the actual uh, restaurant, eating area, and the rooms. The castle itself is a few steps away up a hill, and they've turned that into a museum. Apparently, the family did live there up until the 1960s. You know, my favorite two castles, as far as interiors go, are Berg Eltz in Germany on the Mosul River and Reifenstein Castle in northern Italy, Reifenstein, just south of um, the Brenner Brenner, Pass. As you drive from Munich down to Venice, you will go over the Brenner Pass, and then you come into northern Italy, you pass a town called Vipitino, and there's a castle there called Reifenstein. It has the noble family living there, like the noble family still lives at Berg Eltz, and they put flowers out once a week, and they welcome the tourist, and they make money by charging money to visit it. But these castles, now that I think about it, my third favorite castle interior is in France, on, on the Loire Valley, or no, in Dordogne, called Bainac, and it is still owned and operated by the aristocratic family. And I'll never forget the aristocratic lady of the castle actually opens up the little kiosk and sits there and collects, you know, 10 euros from each tourist that visits, and she's earning a living by letting travelers come in and and visit her castle. But you find these owner-operated medieval castles with the uh, aristocratic family still there trying to make ends meet by welcoming the tourists. Yes, definitely. It was a great experience. I'd like to do it again. Well, Gail, there's uh, no shortage of castles in Europe. That is for sure. Good luck (laughs) in your travels, and thanks for your call. Thank you. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're exploring the castles of Europe, and I'm joined by Martin Delandovitz, a guide who works at a great castle in northern Wales called Carnarvon. we got Robert on the line in Goldsboro, North Carolina. Hey, Robert, thanks for your call. You're quite welcome, Rick. It's a pleasure talking with you. You have some castle story for us. Oh, my goodness. Primarily in Bulgaria, I guess, and I know you've been there many times. That at the Leuschwanstein, uh, actually, and the uh, Lindehof Castle. And I was just wondering how many castles that the so-called Mad King Ludwig, how many did he build? Any idea? Well, first of all, he's called Mad King Ludwig by us tourists and travelers because he spent so much money for his fanciful castles. He was the king of Bavaria, part of the Wittelsbach family. And a lot of us underestimate the importance of the ruling families of the middle-sized countries of Europe before the modern countries were united. And for 600 years, the Wittelsbach family ruled the, you know, moderate power of Bavaria. And King Ludwig II, a.k.a. Mad King Ludwig, he was in the Romantic Age. His favorite buddies were composers and poets and uh, Wagner and so on. And he, rather than deal with the uh, complicated politics of the court in Munich, his favorite times were uh, hanging out with his uh, musical and poetic buddies and building fanciful castles with rooms designed and inspired by Wagnerian operas, you know. And, and he grew up yeah. in Hohenschwangau. And above Hohenschwangau, in the forest, there was a perfect pinnacle for him to build his castle of his dreams. And he spent, almost bankrupted his country, building these great castles. His first castle, I believe, was... Uh, 
well, the most famous one, Neuschwanstein. He also mm-hmm. built, uh, help me here, Martin, uh, I can't remember Linderhof, Linderhof which Dahl. is a gorgeous castle, and uh, Heron Kimsey, a castle on a lake halfway between Munich and Salzburg. So he built three fairy tale castles, and he was planning to build the most incredible castle. I think it was called Falkenberg on a pinnacle twice as high as Neuschwanstein. Mm-hmm. And then one day he was declared insane. And about a week later, he was found face down dead in the lake with his attendant. And uh, there's a big controversy of what happened to the king, mad King Ludwig. But he left. He almost broke the bank by building this Neuschwanstein. But today, it is enriching that corner of Bavaria as all of us travelers go there and pay the big bucks to sleep and eat and tour in that beautiful corner of Germany. Well, you know what amazed me, Rick, is uh, you look at these castles and go in them and get their history. And some of them are only a couple hundred years old, you know. It's, it's amazing with all the history in Europe. I can't get over that. Well, when I was first <laughs> going to Neuschwanstein, uh, Robert, yeah. I was thinking it was medieval because it's pointy. And then I, right. I learned what Romanticism is all about. <laughs> and uh, Martin brought this up. But Romanticism was the ism of the 19th century. And this is when people were rebuilding or building from scratch castles in a romantic medieval way. And when we look at Neuschwanstein, it's the Disney castle. I mean, if Disneyland's castle was inspired by any castle in Europe, it was certainly Mad Ludwig's Neuschwanstein. When you look at Neuschwanstein, you've got to remember, it was built at the same generation as the Eiffel Tower. Very true. And it's Very got true. all the modern uh, technology underneath its fanciful facades. Robert, thanks for your call. Well, you're quite welcome, and I wish you luck in all your travels. Happy travels. Uh, thank you. Angel's on the line from Pasadena, California. Angel, how are you doing? Hey, great, Rick. Thanks for having me on your show. Are you into castles? I love castles. Um, My favorite castle trip has actually been on the Rhine River. You know, that cruise from Bingen to Koblenz is dotted with castles, and I actually stayed at the Berg Stalik, which is perched high above the Rhine and gives you magical views of the Rhine River. You know, for years I was uh, helping people try to figure out the best part of the Rhine, and the Rhine goes from Switzerland all the way to Holland, but people got to remember that it's the romantic Rhine gorge that is of interest to the romantic tourist, and that is the area between Frankfurt and Koblenz, and then along that stretch, the very best is what you said, Angel, from Bingen to Koblenz. Right. I think the best overnights are either St. Gore or Bacharach. In my youth, I used to stay in the youth hostel you're talking about, now I can afford a little guest house in the town, and it's a little more private and a little more comfortable. You don't have to climb up to the top of the mountain to get to your bed. <laughs> I stay in Hotel Kranenturm, and Kranenturm is the Tower of the Crane, literally. It was associated with the castle, and that's where the boats would park, and they would use the crane to pull the kegs of wine off of the boat and porterage it up past some rapids or something like this. And today you can actually sleep in a quasi-castle down in the town of Bacharach if you go to Hotel Kranenturm. Is that right off of the water there? Yes, right overlooking the water. They've reclaimed some land to make the freeway and the parking lot, but uh, uh, originally the water would lap right up against the walls of Bacharach. And lately I discovered two undiscovered gems that I don't think are on the American radar yet. Um, the Poenary Castle, which is in Transylvania near the Fagarash Pass, and the Braun Castle, which is, again, in Transylvania, and both have a connection with Vlad Tepes. Now, uh, Angel, I want to talk about the Rhine River in a minute, but let's stay in Romania. So this is Dracula's castle, right? Braun Castle? Braun Castle, yeah. It was made famous by Bram Stoker, um, and it was actually lived in by the Romanian royal family up until, you know, Ceausescu kicked him out. It's supposed that Vlad Tepes did stay there one night, and one of Vlad's ruined castles, which you can hike up to, is the Ponary Citadel, and that's a 13th century ruined castle and, uh, you know, it's a great strategic point, and Vlad's wife actually threw herself off of the mountain from that one. But it's an amazing hike up the mountain and great ruined castle, and I had it all to myself when I went, to be truthful. Now, I've been in the Braun Castle in Transylvania, in Romania, and it's, it's okay. It didn't blow me away. It seems a lot of it has been rebuilt. Exactly. Most in the 20th century, because Queen Marie... And then I think her son later renovated it as well. But at night, I think it's a little spooky, you know, if you're there on a cold, misty night. And just the positioning of the castle itself is quite nice. Now, Romania, i got to say, doesn't have an overwhelming abundance of charm to attract tourists from the West. So they milk their Dracula legend as much as they can. Consequently, lots of Dracula tours are going to visit the Braun Castle. What guidebook did you use for Romania? 
I use the Lonely Planet Romania. There's not that much tourism to keep a lot of guides going for Romania, but were you satisfied with the Lonely Planet Guide to Romania? I I was, actually, because it gave me great, you know, information for the independent traveler. And recently, there has been the Brat Guide, which has been published, the first edition for Transylvania. The Brat Guide is good for those offbeat destinations like Transylvania. Did you go to Sigashora while you were there? Yes, I did. You know, and that's uh, Vlad Tepes's hometown. Sigashore is one of my favorite towns in Eastern Europe. And there I was struck by the traditional German communities that survive vividly today in Romania. You know, the Anglo-Saxons were there a long time ago, and there is a large thriving community in that part of Transylvania, uh, Sibiu, which is another yeah. town in in I, I think it's such a time warp in part because the metabolism of modernization was slowed way down during the communist time and the German enclaves just kept going about their pre-World War I German ways. And then in modern times, we wake up and find there's German communities in Romania that are arguably more traditionally German than those you'd find in Germany itself. Yeah, you know, Sigishwara, you, you describe it correctly as a magical city, and my godfather, when we visited it together, said that it, this is probably what Germany looked like before World War II. Okay, I'm glad that you can update me on that, because that was my impression from uh, longer ago, and you were just there recently. Yeah. Angel, thanks for your feedback. Thank you, sir. Happy Have travels. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with a castle expert, Martin Delandovitz. Martin, when you're at your home castle in Carnarvon, and you want to leave an impression on your visitors, where do you take them and what do you say? The thing that I, you have to consider, and this is, this is my, my view, castles are the highest demonstration of wealth and power in the secular world. Other great cathedrals and churches, they're built to the glory of God, but castles are built to the glory of men. And you always have to remember this. You are looking at ruins. A building that hasn't had its roof on for hundreds of years is always going to be a mess. The mistake is, and Hollywood helps us in this, we go around believing that they were built as ruins. Well, wake up, kings didn't build ruins as a hobby. And great leaders to this day, Prince Charles, the, the Prince of Wales in the future, will go to Carnarvon Castle Yes, to receive their title. Yes, Princes of Wales have been crowned at Carnarvon Castle from, oh, actually only from 1911. But it is a tradition, one would think. But they choose to go to a castle because, as you said, that's the measure of power, secular power. That that was the great center of power in Wales, and so it remains to this day. But but when you're visiting these castles, you don't have to use the eye of faith a bit. You have to realize there were great demonstrations of wealth and power. They did have plaster on the walls. They did have paint in the plaster. They did have glass in the windows. And that's another thing people say. Did they really... Did they have glass then? I I wish I had a dollar for every time I've heard that one. Now, people are happy to walk into churches, chapels like Saint-Chapelle. There it is in the 1240s with its wonderful stained glass. And they go into a castle built at the same time and say, oh, did they have glass then? Well, of course, you've just seen it. It would have been as sumptuous, perhaps, as the churches. Absolutely. Something to keep in mind. As you enjoy castles from Portugal to Israel to Finland, remember, get a guidebook, read a book, get a guide, follow a tour, let those castles be painted in, plastered over, filled with warmth and families and people and struggles, and you can get a little look at life in middle-age Europe. Martin Delandovitz, thank you very much. Thank you, Rick. Up next, we take a closer look at the differences between the rich world and our neighbors in developing countries. We'll hear how one agency places high school students from Seattle on summer projects in remote villages in Guatemala and how everyone benefits from the experience. 877-333-RIC is our number. It's Travel with Rick Steves. I'm David Sedaris from the United States, and I travel with Rick Steves. Wait. Je voyage. Right? Oui. Would I say je voyage souvent, de temps en temps, je voyage avec Rick Steves. Wow. You're, you picked up that French very well. De temps en temps, pas toujours, mais de temps en temps, je voyage avec mon ami Rick Steves. you got to sound like Maurice Chevalier or something, and it's... It's actually good, Art Inspector Pluto. Well, so many Americans, too. You know, like I've got a friend in Paris, probably the least self-conscious person I know. In elle parle français comme ça. Yeah. And when you go to a restaurant, excusez-moi, mais j'ai commandé <laughs> la salade niçoise sans la tone. <laughs> oh. More and more Americans are understanding the value of young people having some foreign study experience. We generally think about it in terms of college semester abroad. But a lot of high schoolers are having a foreign study experience or a foreign service experience, and today that's our topic. We're talking about the work of global visionaries in particular and high school ambassadors abroad in general. 
I'm joined by Chris Fontana, the executive director and co-founder of Global Visionaries, and one of his students who's had an experience uh, working and studying and serving in Guatemala, Jan Nicholas. Jan and Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Rick. Now, Chris, you founded this back in the 90s, co-founded it, and what was your motivation? It's a charity, basically. What, what motivates you? Knowing that every day we're making a difference on the planet, helping young people understand as U.S. citizens that they have a lot of responsibility and a lot of potential to make a difference on the planet. You work in Seattle, and there's groups, I would imagine, scattered all over the country that work to give high schoolers an experience in a foreign country. You took, what, 350, 360 uh, students uh, to Guatemala in the last year. Yeah. Tough times, a lot of parents wondering, uh, what are we gonna, how are we going to pay the rent? Why is this a good value? I think students come back with a new perspective on life, and it helps them become not only prepared for college, but prepared to be global citizens. So you take a young person who, before entering our program and after entering our program, and you see a, just a complete change of lifestyle. Well, let's talk about that with one of your students. Jan, how long did you spend uh, in Guatemala? Um, it was about 15 days, I think. I'm in 11th grade. I participated in 2007 as a freshman. Okay. And yeah, I, we really get immersed in the culture when we go down to Guatemala. There's a quote that is very important in GV. It's, if you've come here to help me, um, you're wasting your time. But if you've come here knowing that your liberation is linked to mine, then let's work together. And that's very much an idea that um, surrounds everything that we do. So you're not the rich white people going down there to help the poor people? No. I mean, it's, we work on work teams while we're in Guatemala. Well, I worked on a coffee work team, working on a plantation, kind of seeing how hard it is to be a coffee farmer. And for each work team, you're working alongside Guatemalan teenagers who are participating in the program as well. Now, a lot of high schools have a debate going on when it comes to these foreign study opportunities for their students. Some of the facilitators and teachers and parents want it to be a service project. They want to go down there and build a building for these poor people. Other people want it to be an educational experience where they don't build a building, but the kids go down there and they become broader in their perspective. I mean, I really don't think they're mutually exclusive things. I mean, in the program, we have, there are four different community service things you can do in Guatemala. The one I did was the coffee work team. And there's three others. There's construction, which you work along with Guatemalan teenagers, or chapines, as we call them. We've built classrooms. I think it's about 16 classrooms we've built. The city we're centered in is Antigua, Guatemala. And we work in their volunteer-based hospital, seeing what kind of care is like. So you rolled there. up your sleeve, you helped out, you got some real experience, you yeah. learned about the developing world. I know you have a lot of scholarships and so on, but for getting the scholarships, uh, Chris, what does it cost to send a kid down there for two weeks and back? It costs twenty six forty plus airfare. So two, two, so basically $3,000 or so on to give a kid a two-week experience down there. That's right. Picking coffee, you're helping out in a hospital or, or stacking bricks in a new building. Or reforestation. Or planting trees. But come on, Jan, uh, your parents are spending $3,000. That's five years' income for these people you're helping out, <laughs> and you're going to pick some coffee beans. Now, how do you make that $3,000 really a good investment if you care about poor people? Somebody might say, send them the money. But no, send your kids down there. You come home, don't you have a, an obligation now to, to make that a good investment? Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly, as Chris said, the program is about viewing yourself as a global citizen versus a U.S. citizen. Before the trip, my actions, I didn't think about the ripple effect, but I see that I'm very connected to the world. My actions, this water bottle I'm drinking, I mean, the plastic is made with all this water, and there's all these countries in the world where you have to walk four miles to get water. My actions are not going to just affect West Seattle. I'm a global citizen. You're a citizen of the planet now. There's a connection. That's the base of it, yeah. So your parents invested 3000 bucks in this, and that's the gift that keeps on giving on this planet because you're going to spend the rest of your life in solidarity with people who have to walk for water. Yeah. The program is certainly not just 15 days in Guatemala. The first step of the program is a year-long program. I started freshman year. I'm an 11th grader now, and I'm still in the program on their youth board. The program really strives to be youth-run. Right now, I'm working on a pro-justice work team, which I've gotten educated with a group of other students about um, social justice issues, systematic oppression. Social um, justice, systematic oppression, structural poverty. Yeah, things exactly wow. like that. Thomas and, Jefferson wrote that travel makes a person wiser but less happy. I, yeah, I, ignorance <laughs> is bliss, certainly. Um, <laughs> so now you can't just drink a bottle of water without thinking about the, the women who have to walk for exactly. water for five hours every day if they live south of our border. What a drag. Chris, you make all these high school kids go and you complicate their lives by understanding reality. 
It's a difficult thing. <laughs> oh, my but goodness. I have a lot of fun doing it. Knowledge is power, though. Wow. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Chris Fontana, the co-founder of Global Visionaries, and one of his students, Jan Nicholas. Now, when you come back, Jan, do your friends, is it frustrating? Because some people, they don't relate anymore. It's, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a, like, a reverse culture shock when you return. Several kids come from my high school. I really only wanted to be with them because... I don't know. You see actions people are taking and see kind of the ripple effects after you've come back. It's kind of dangerous because you become sort of elitist, don't Yeah, you? Ex- that's what I was going to say. It's, it's almost like you feel like um, you don't quite understand. I mean, you get over that after the first week. See, when you travel, you do have that frustration. I mean, you go to Central America, it puts a fire in your mm-hmm. belly. And then you're not old enough to vote yet, are you? But when, when, you, few when you go into the voting booth... You'll step in there and uh, bring the developing world with you. Yeah, I'm a global citizen. I'm representing everyone. I mean, that's certainly why I stay involved with Global Visionaries. I, I want to keep on educating people. Would it worry you that some kids could go south of the border or whatever and miss the opportunity to have it impact their life? The U.S. has all this power so that we have this power to help people. But in fact, this power is kind of hurting them also. I mean, to see that Humans are humans. I guess it's it's complicated. It's very in other, complicated in other words, ideas. In other words, you can't go down there and write their textbooks for yeah. them and show them how to get it together. We can go down there and stand in solidarity with exactly. them. Exactly. There's an idea and, of, and empathize with them. Yeah. And we can address issues of structural poverty. But I'm, what I'm getting at, though, is an organization like Global Visionaries or whoever is facilitating these mm-hmm. high school travel experiences, it's a huge responsibility to provide an environment where the kids actually wrestle with these issues. Chris, I know you have something called Reflections Times each That's evening right. with the students. Tell us the value of that. Each night we get together, and sometimes it's with their work team. Sometimes we mix up the work teams because they're so different. And try to create the space where students feel comfortable to do what we call popular education. In other words, we're not giving them the answer. So you facilitate the discussion among the students That's as right. they wrestle with these challenges that they never realized if they hadn't taken the trouble to go down there. Yeah, and it comes out in strange ways. Such as? Uh, oh, well, a student will feel dehydrated because they haven't drank enough water. Uh, we're at elevation. They've been working hard. Their body is exercising a lot more than they're used to. And then, you know, poverty hits them. And mm-hmm. it hits them on a very physical level. And uh, they'll come out with things they never thought that they would, <laughs> it would come out of their mouth. So you can read a magazine, Jan, in your classroom and go, oh, poor kids. Yeah. But you go down there and you feel the altitude, you feel the work, you feel the exhaustion, you feel the bugs at night, you feel the consequence of global warming, you feel the thirst. Powerful Participating stuff. in it is, it's really beyond words. You know, I mean, I'm lucky because I've met a lot of kids your age that have mm-hmm. had this experience and it is an inspiration, I got to tell you. Chris Fontana, there's a lot of squandered opportunities when it comes to foreign study. You got parents and chaperones that are just scamming a free trip by getting 10 students together and there's no stewardship responsibilities here. You're taking these kids there. you got to get them that experience. That's so, right. So what are, what are the safeguards there? So I would ask first and foremost about safety. I would ask about the chaperones and the leaders and their educational qualifications. And I would ask about the preparations that they're going to do with the youth before they even get to the country. If they're not doing preparation, then it's just going to be one of those vacations or it's going to be uh, charity where they're going down and they'll come back and they'll write their college essay <laughs> about how they yeah. help the poor people. So a lot of parents probably just do this who are overachievers. They want their kids to have something on their resume to get into a fancy college. Foreign, it's true. Foreign study experience. So, Jan, how did preparation help you get the real value out of your experience? Well, we don't really talk about um, how it affects us in Guatemala as much, but just seeing how it affects us in our lives in Seattle. Those workshops that we do are actually led by youth board members. Students are facilitating these. Who've um, had this experience? Yes. They've gone on the trip. That's what I do on the youth board. I'm a pro-justice member. So Mm -hmm. I have, in the past month, I got to facilitate these workshops because now I have the knowledge. I've been on this experience. I have this perspective. So we use Theater of the Oppressed workshop activities to help kids. I mean, we don't don't feed them the answers. As Chris said, popular education is very important. And that reminds me of one of the most enjoyable days I ever had as a parent. We took our daughter to the evening uh, presentation at her high school when they were shopping for their foreign study opportunities. And the kids who had been to India and who had been to Dominican Republic and who had been to Peru and had been to Morocco were all there pushing their favorite destination. And all the kids who went to India were just saying, this is the best, and the Peru kids were there, and Jackie ended up going to Morocco. And it was just a life-changing experience for her. Uh, we've traveled a lot with her, but there was nothing like being a student with other students, with a facilitator, in a live-in situation in a developing country. Now, what is your policy with cell phones, Facebook, email, photographs, all that kind of thing? Students uh, are surprised to understand that there are no cell phones, no iPods, no electronics, 
except cameras. But even with cameras, there's an education around when you can take pictures, yeah. how to be a good ambassador. See, our daughter's group had one camera for the whole group. That's great. Yeah. Now, Jan, how did you manage without cell phones and without uh, Facebook and iPods and so on? Well, I don't know. I guess I'm not the most technologically. Oh, so you dependent. weren't you weren't just in distraught for not being. I on mean, Facebook. I I'm definitely I like music, so my iPod that was that okay. was definitely what I missed. I'd never gone two weeks without music before. I wouldn't sign up if I was a parent for a program that let the kids take a, an iPod or a cell phone. Yeah, because sure. you got to live in a homestay. I mean, you listen to their music. You sit. So at you're the living table with, with them. You're, you're not in a hostel with the other students. No, you're I'm actually in somebody's home. I'm living with a Guatemalan family. What was that like? That's two o'clock in the morning. Got to go to the bathroom. Take me there. I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> Is it out back? No, it's, well, it's right by our room. And there's great water limitations. So they have this huge, like, water tank right above us. And you can't flush anything down the toilet. It's, right. it's very limited. I took, like, one shower while and I was down there. you ate with the family? Yeah, we ate at the dinner table and then watched some Mexican soap operas in black and white. What there. did you learn about the kids? What, how do the kids party? Oh, um, Guatemala. there's a lot of this reggaeton music. That's what they like. I mean, we, we ride these things called chicken buses, which are school buses from the United States that kind of get sent down as I noticed hand. that. All of our school buses, when they're ready to retire, yeah. they send them south of the border. And they get painted with these fabulous they get colors. They still see Red Robin or whatever the and company we ha- is. And we had a few trips to like Lake Atitlan, and the three-hour ride there and back, we're dancing in the aisles. It's You know, quote, poor kids. They're not yeah. that poor. They don't have the, the modern uh, conveniences we got, but they're you rich in a lot happy. of ways, aren't they? Yeah, that's definitely one lesson. So well-being I... is not necessarily preceded by material. Mm-mm, certainly... That's a radical concept right there. I think the more you can leave your home at home, the better. In other words, uh, let's not have them use the Internet. Let's not have them call. You know, it takes a few days just to get acclimated. And then it takes a few weeks just to get comfortable with the language. And then it takes a few months, really, if you're going to do a longer program, just to get comfortable. And if you're with calling it. mom, or worse yet, if mom's calling you, how are you going to do it? You right? get right back so, into the homesickness and you get stuck in your homesickness. Now, Chris, you've been taking kids to Guatemala, not a particularly safe place to bring young people, I don't think. And you've been doing it 300 a year for over a decade. Um, how's your track record? In terms of safety, it's perfect to this point. We get a lot of help from the tourist police when we leave Guatemala City and go to Antigua. Antigua is a pretty safe city in that it has about 50 to 60 language schools. And so there's international travelers that go in and out of there. And then we do our work outside of Antigua. So young Americans are not unusual in Guatemala, study programs with chaperones and so on. That's right. What about health for the kids? Dehydration, mild dehydration is always an issue. Uh, Folks have to drink plenty of water to stay. Yeah, our daughter got quite sick in Morocco. And, you know, it was nerve-wracking for me and Anne. But, you know, we just had to leave it in the hands of the chaperones and the caring people there. And it worked out just fine. And in retrospect, it was not a bad experience. Yeah, by and large, if if the kids are comfortable learning how to drink mass quantities of water, then they're going to be fine. They're going to get used to the digestive problems that come with traveling, and they're going to be fine. Now, Chris Fontana, you work so hard to get these kids this experience, and it could be just everything great. They come home, and then it just dissipates. How do you make sure it stays with them for the rest of their lives? We do the best we can to take that reentry process and, and make it meaningful. So we have a post-trip leadership retreat where we talk about the values that they learn in Guatemala, how different they are, that, hey, actually, people come first before profits. And how can you integrate these values that you've learned in your busy U.S. life that you lead? And then as Jan spoke about earlier, we invite them to join the youth board where they can be in collegiality with all of their peers. Aren't you just taking young people, good American capitalists, and turning them into uh, like uh, radicals and liberals and communists and and vegetarians? (laughs) (laughs) If we can challenge imperialism everywhere, we will do that. uh... Well, that's an interesting point, isn't it, Jan? I mean, you don't grow up thinking much about imperialism, but when you're in Guatemala, you have a different perspective on things. I mean, yeah, it's certainly... The U.S. imperialism isn't just like taking over a country, but it's also cultural imperialism, how we dress, how we talk, how we act around these people, if we speak English or not. If you speak English in front of a Guatemalan while you're down there. Rick, I think that our culture is a little bit, uh, we've become so consumer-oriented that when you get to a place like Guatemala, where they're still family-oriented, where they still sit around and sing rather than listen to the radio, where they dance instead of watch dance videos, and you come back to a culture that is completely opposite of that, yeah, you think you're going up the stream the wrong way. Well, maybe that's the silver lining in this whole financial disaster we're living through right now. Tom's on the phone in Georgetown, Texas. Tom, thanks for your call. Hi. I'm, I'm very impressed with the, the program that Chris has put together and that John has participated in. My own experience uh, had mostly to do with college-age young people. I taught for over 30 years in a small university here in Texas and took 
students first on field trips, then on travel seminars, and finally on service learning experiences into uh, Mexico and Central America. It was fairly regular that the students would have some sort of a transformative experience, uh, that they would come back as different and, I think, better people uh, for the experience. I'm retired now, but in retirement, my wife and I have been continuing to do overseas volunteer projects, including in uh, places like Costa Rica, Nicaragua, uh, Honduras, and Guyana in South America. One of the dimensions I might like to add to the conversation here is to encourage also multi-generational service projects. I know that it's a really good experience for high schoolers or college students to go together, but I've had experience where there were people from a broad age spectrum, including high school students. It's probably a different experience, but it's always been a good experience. The young people bring energy uh, Mm -hmm. and enthusiasm that's very helpful to the whole group. I like the notion that it should not be limited just to children. I would say, though, that the prerequisite is if the adult considers him or herself a lifelong learner. Some people are done learning at a certain age, and that's a shame, (laughs) isn't it? Exactly, exactly. I love the word that you said there, transformative. Imagine if a parent can give their child a transformative experience. That is really... How can you put a price on that? I mean... I'm sitting here with Jan right now, and I know the value of this and of his parents. I'd be very thankful for the work that uh, Chris Fontana does with his organization, Global Visionaries. Tom from Texas, thanks for your call. All right, thanks. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been imagining giving kids an experience learning to live with other people. We've been joined by Chris Fontana and an ace student of his program, Jan Nicholas. Uh, And again, Chris Fontana is the co-founder of Global Visionaries, global-visionaries.org. Chris Fontana and Jan Nicholas, thanks so much for sharing with us the importance of giving students an opportunity to broaden their perspective through travel. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online, including listener feedback and archived audio on demand. It's in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. Join us again next time for Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from 36 exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe, from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free tour catalogue and Rick Steves Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour section at ricksteves.com.